This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the last time a wall went up to keep out immigrants, we'll speak with historian Linda Gordon about the anti-immigrant politics of the 1920s and the lessons they hold for us today. Also, the death of Mad Magazine. Founded in the 50s, it told the truth about war, advertising, and the media. Now DC Comics is shutting it down. Jeet here will comment. We'll also have your Minnesota moment. Amazon warehouse workers in Minnesota plan to strike on Amazon Prime Day, the online retailer's summer sales extravaganza. First up, the sentence says... First up, the census says, count every person. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, who would have thought the census would become such a big political issue? You count every person, period. But now, now we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and he's host of the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, we have breaking news on KPFK. Trump is about to speak in the Rose Garden. Is he abandoning his effort to add a citizenship question to the census? Yes, because he has spoken. Uh, and ah. This is the interesting thing about the president. When he's really humiliated, he tends to be quick about it. <laughs> uh, and so you're at, literally, as you were kind of probably prepping to go on, uh, he did come out and do this quick uh, press conference in the Rose Garden. And he did it with uh, William Barr, the attorney general, and Wilbur Ross, the, you know, all but, but certain to someday go down in history as most uh, you know, scandal-plagued Secretary of Commerce ever. Um, and the, the takeaway from the event, the thing that people should be conscious of, is that while he tried to come on strong, tried to say, oh, I found a new route to do this, Donald Trump today was forced to back off, uh, apparently at all turns, every effort, every suggestion, the project of putting a citizenship question into the census. That is a huge stand down because the president and the people around him spent, you know, literally months, even years trying to make this happen. Uh, secondly, as part of this humiliating moment for the president, um, he embraced a, what he described as sort of a new strategy. He says, I've, come up with this innovative executive action, executive order, uh, to use an alternative route to get the information. But what he did not say is this was the strategy, this was the approach he rejected more than a year ago uh, as sort of uh, insufficient, as an ineffectual way of trying to do what he was seeking to do. So... Uh, anybody with any perspective on this would have to say that this is really one of the, the sort of biggest victories, if you will, for uh, advocates for immigrant rights, voting rights, civil rights, who recognized in the president's effort to add this citizenship question uh, a real assault 
on a number of communities in this country, really an effort to try and scare people away from participating in the census. And uh, the president failed. At least he failed on the official level. I think we should continue as we talk a few minutes more here yes. to talk about, you know, still the messaging of it, which is troublesome. Well, the the challenge to this, I believe, was organized by the uh, ACLU, which brought lawsuits um, mm-hmm. that worked their way up through the courts. Um, and we, we announced a couple of weeks ago when the court ruled that Trump's reasons were, let's say, not convincing, uh, we call that a great victory. But the court left the door open. John Roberts told Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, who you have mentioned, uh, that yeah. while his um, reasons for adding a citizen que- citizenship question were not convincing, he should submit more reasons. He should try again, John Roberts said. And it's kind of remarkable that even with that encouragement from the Chief Justice, they couldn't think of a decent reason that would hold up in court. They didn't have one. That's true. And and I think your analysis there is very well made. But there is also another element that's in play. Uh, the census is one of the, the biggest things that the United States does yeah. uh, as a country. And it is a huge endeavor, uh, this notion of actually trying to count every American. It is the underpinning of our democracy. Uh, based on these numbers, we figure out how to draw our voting districts, how to distribute federal aid. Uh, You know, we we literally weigh the size and influence of states against one another uh, based on on this data. And so to to do this uh, requires an immense number of workers, an immense uh, amount of paperwork, an immense uh, just national initiative. It has to start at some point, John. And... (laughs) Uh, it, the timeline, in many ways, uh, was as pressing as the lack of legal arguments. So now, let me just interrupt that. here to say that you have recently, just uh, yesterday, uh, published a piece at thenation.com that said the census is not just about numbers, it's not just about counting. You say it's one of the deepest commitments of our Constitution and a radical tool for democratizing America. It's more than just a tough job. Tell us uh, why it's a radical tool for democratizing America. Well, that's the other side of it, and that's the thing that I hope progressives take away from all this fight. You know, we've just been through this long struggle over the the citizenship question, Uh, and that was a defensive struggle. There was a, a... honest, sincere effort to prevent the addition of a question that was clearly being put in there to try and scare people away from answering, to try and uh, influence the process, put a, put a thumb on the scale, if you will. Now that the process is ready to go forward, uh, progressives especially have to move out of the defensive mode and into an offensive mode in the sense that we should really be passionate about counting everybody, making sure that this process works, that the the fear tactics of the president and those around him do not succeed in scaring any way, anyone away from participating, and that uh, our state, local, and even federal government, to the extent that it's possible, you know, really commits to making this thing work. Because the, the core of the census is this. There, there was an understanding at the founding of the American experiment by very imperfect players, right, folks who actually had a relatively limited view of democracy, but, but an understanding that if power was to flow from the people, you had to know how many people there were. <laughs> yes. And you had to know where they lived, and you had to know a little bit about them. Uh, 
And, and that's the way we ought to go back to that core concept that the more people we count, the better we count them, and the better we distribute the power that extends from that count, the greater our ability to have government that is reflective of the great mass of Americans. And so this is a big deal. I, our friends, you know, political analysts and all, will often say that there's a demographic wave coming in America, and that in that, not that many years, America will be a very different country. In particular, states will be very different. Uh, Texas will be different. Florida will be different, because our population will be more diverse. Uh, and, and we always talk about that. This is where it gets locked in. Yeah. This, is, this is the point at which it becomes real and where governance can extend from it as regards the drawing of lines, not just for Congress, but for state legislature, for city council, for school board, for county boards. I mean, this is a big deal. And we ought, no one, let me put it this way, no one ought to, you know, tuck themselves in tonight and say, well, the fight over the, the citizenship question is done. Let's not think about the census anymore. It should be the opposite. We have an opportunity to make this census a real challenge, a real pushback against all of those who want to limit our democracy and really the, the great scope and character of this American experiment. Some of our activist friends are, are worried that, that uh, Trump's effort has already damaged the chances of getting a full and accurate census, that there's anxiety in immigrant communities uh, now about what it means to part participate in the census. I want to underline here that according to law, census takers are forbidden from sharing the information they obtain with any other government agency. All they do is count, and then the books are closed on that. But how much damage do you think uh, may have been done by, by the months of fighting about this? A lot, and we shouldn't lie about it. And I think what the president did today was an effort to continue that damage. Yeah. Um, he even talked about using other sets of data and still perhaps using, you know, coming up with other ways to draw district lines. I mean, he's, he's continually trying to muddy the, the water and, I, again, as you suggest, to keep these fear tactics in play. So there's simply no question that the president hasn't given up. I wouldn't doubt for a second that we may see allies of the president continuing, you know, to, to do scare campaigns, as they sometimes have done at election time to scare people away from from voting even. Yeah. And, and so if we understand this as such, if we know that that threat exists, that you might see, you know, even billboards, you know, trying to scare people away from, from participating, our job, our job is to counter that fear, right? Yeah. It is to communicate a great deal about it, to be at the ready, to, to say at every turn and in every sense, uh, what you just said about, you know, that this is, can't be used against uh, an individual or their family, but also in the broader sense, to build out that positive image of the census, to let people know that this really is a democratizing tool, and far from being afraid of it, uh, people should be proud and excited to participate in it, and that all of us should work to make sure that our friends and neighbors no matter what their background, no matter where they come from, no matter, you know, how deep their roots here in this country are or how recently they've, they've come, that, that we need to know these numbers because it's the way 
that we don't just draw the voting districts, which I think is incredibly important. It's also the way that we make sure that there's sufficient aid on, on things like health care and housing and education. And so there are so many messages uh, that are positive messages about why we ought to all do this. And it becomes a duty now to counter the fear tactics. And, and speaking of fear tactics, I think here in Los Angeles, we're very concerned about the announcement that the uh, uh, ICE is going to be conducting massive raids starting on Sunday to round up and deport uh, undocumented um, uh, people. Um, fear tactics once again. Well, exactly. And, and we should separate this into, put this in two boxes. Not that they're really separate, but, but understand one thing. We have the immediate challenge of the ICE raids, yeah. right? That's, yeah. that's real, and local governments have to, to figure out how to respond and how to protect their communities. You know, my daughter goes to a school where they were concerned about ICE raids, you know, several months ago. Yeah. And, I mean, this is high school students worrying about whether their fellow students can go home and what door you ought to leave out just in case somebody might be waiting there to, to cause you trouble or your family trouble. I mean... This is, this is a really serious issue. We cannot underestimate it as such. However, if we then look at the broader fear tactics, then we get into this, this awful game that our, some of our politicians play, which is to you know, try to blur the margins and, and make people feel that it's just generally unsafe to kind of lift your head up and and to be seen, to be a part of things, that if, if you are participating in the census, if you're voting, because you, you have a right to vote, you, are, you, know, you have met all the qualifications, but you still think, well, if I go to vote, then you know, I'm, I'm putting my name out there in all sorts of other ways. You know, there's all these tactics that try to, to make participating in this American process seem threatening. And in that regard, in that second regard, it's our job to communicate that no matter what this administration tries to do, no matter what these politicians try to do, Americans of all backgrounds, the people who live in this place, from all backgrounds, all experiences, uh, we need them to be a part of the census. As we have needed everyone to be a part of the census from the founding of this country, we have had a very long struggle. Uh, toward democratization. We haven't gotten all the way there yet. But boy, if we allow this president to use scare tactics that make people afraid to participate in the census, then he will have won a very big battle for forces uh, that really are fighting against the future itself. And uh, we ought to be on the side of the future. And on the... Uh Announcement of the ICE raid, the massive ICE raids, which are going to seek to deport thousands of people starting on Sunday in Los Angeles and other uh, cities across the United States. There is some news on that uh, front just uh, this, this, this morning. The uh, ACLU here of Southern California, along with the New York Civil Liberties Union, are going to court uh, to try to get a court order uh, that anyone who is detained by ICE uh, has a constitutional due process right to appear before an immigration judge with before being deported. Um, 
Uh, That's vital. Ahilan Arulanatham, the senior counsel of the ACLU of Southern California, who's been a guest on our show in the past, said the Trump administration's plan to arrest and deport thousands of Central American families and children without giving them a fair day in court is both illegal and immoral. Uh, immigrants cannot be deported without due process, according to a Supreme Court decision more than 100 years ago. These vulnerable refugees deserve that basic protection, close quote. And so we say hats off to the uh, ACLU of Southern California and their partners in this lawsuit. Well, it's notable, John, that the ACLU is a key figure in the census fight. It's a key figure in the pushback as regards the ICE raids. And they're not the only group, by any measure. There's a number of groups that have really... Uh, worked on all of these issues, but the ACLU's role is incredibly central here. And one of the things that's important to understand is that there is a tremendous body of law that stands on the side of immigrants. Despite everything this president's trying to suggest, despite all the fear tactics, the, the history and the precedents are on the side of immigrants, and they are on the side of immigrants, despite the many failings of this country over many centuries. The law, the precedent is there because at our best, we understand that, that immigrants are Americans. They, they're people, maybe they're in a process and you know, where that process goes, that, that gets sorted out. But the truth of the matter is they're here, they're with us, they, they help to build this country up. This country was created you know, and made strong in so many ways by immigrants. Our native, our native American brothers and sisters were here first. The immigrants came after, um, and yet there's no question that that um, you know this long, long history of immigration to this country is is a strength for America, not a weakness. And um, it's very, very vital at this time to communicate that that reality to let people know that uh, the law, by and large is useful in this regard. And those groups like the ACLU that have stepped up to fight this president on this issue are really vital. Uh, they deserve support in that. But also the education process that extends from their work is vital because people, no matter what background you come from, people need to understand that those laws, those precedents, this history exists because this is a good for this country. Uh, in the minute or two left here, I want to ask you about the daughter of uh, Iranian immigrants, a 29-year-old politician in Florida who is taking on the NRA. Her name is Anna Eskamani, and she's your guest this week on the Next Left podcast. We've just got a minute or two for you to tell yeah. us about Anna Eskamani. Anna Eskamani is just an incredible figure, and I really, you know, I, I'm... I'm Certainly thrilled to be self-promotional, <laughs> to tell people to, to listen to the podcast for all sorts of reasons. I really encourage people to check this one out, because this young woman, uh, and she is young, she's 29, um, has, has already done so much in her life. Before she was even elected, uh, she's been active on uh, reproductive rights issues for the better part of a decade. She's been active on immigration issues in part because she does come from an immigrant family. Um, but she's also been active uh, for on two sets of issues that are especially vital for her experience. She represents a district in Orlando, Florida, which is where the Pulse 
nightclub is located and has been located. And that's an LGBTQ nightclub where you had the horrible shootings where, um, you know, better part of 50 people were killed, a similar number uh, were wounded. And she was part of the response to the, the massacre at the Pulse nightclub. Uh, and that she was already very political, but that made her, I think, more political. She's gone to the state legislature, taking a seat that had been held by a Republican. Uh, and she has served as a passionate ad- advocate for LGBTQ rights, uh, for gun control, uh, and really having incredible success, which is amazing. This is a Republican governor and a Republican-dominated legislature, and yet she has actually been able to force the governor to stand down on some issues. Uh, and she does it with this remarkable inside-outside approach that she works in that legislature hard, but if necessary, she is out in the streets with people who are protesting as well. She's a really inspirational figure. And the final thing I will suggest is that in many of these interviews for Next Left, we talk to people about their work in the legislature, their work in politics. But because Anna Eskamani is from an uh, Iranian-American background, we also talk to her about that. And frankly, her comments on uh, the president and his approach to Iran are strikingly powerful because she speaks as someone who really understands that part of the world and understands the dynamics very, very well. And so it's just a, it's a fascinating conversation. The 29-year-old politician taking on the NRA in Florida, Anna Escamani, this week with John Nichols on the Next Left podcast. You can find it at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcast. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a total pleasure to be with you, my friend. I'm John Wiener. Oh, and can I say, by the way, before I let you get off on this sure. thing, you're about to talk to Linda Gordon, who's like the greatest <laughs> rocking historian in America. She's a neighbor of yours in Madison right now, as a matter of fact. But she rocks, and <laughs> you, you, are, you are about to talk to an amazing, amazing historian. John is right. Next up, anti-immigrant politics, past, present, and future with historian Linda Gordon. It's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Mad Magazine, they called it a commie rag. We'll miss it when it's gone. But first, anti-immigrant politics, past and present. For that, we turn to Linda Gordon. She teaches history at NYU. She writes for the New York Times Book Review, The Nation, and others. And she's the author of many books, including The Second Coming of the KKK. Linda, welcome back. Thanks. I'm so pleased to talk to you. Well... Of course, hatred and fear of immigrants were the central themes of uh, Trump's election campaign. We all remember the Muslim ban. We hear about, we still hear about build the wall. It's going to be his central theme in 2020. It's been a long time since anti-immigrant politics were such a powerful force in American life. But actually, we have to go back to the 1920s. Uh, but wasn't there a lot more immigration uh, in the decades leading up to the 20s than there have been in the last decade or two? 
Well, there was more, particularly if you understand it in relation to the size of the U.S. population at that time. Lots and lots of people were coming, but the total amount of immigrants in that period represented something like 3% of the existing population of the United States. Uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm saying it backwards. To, more recently, it's only 3%. And in the period earlier, it was much, much larger in proportion to the population. But, you know, there is one thing that those these two periods of immigration have in common, and that is in the early 20th century, what was disturbing to some Americans was that, were that most of the immigrants were not white Protestants. They were overwhelmingly Catholics or Jews or Russian or Greek Orthodox. And at that time, many of those categories of people were not even considered white uh, but you were getting this huge backlash uh, around the notion that this country was supposed to be a white Protestant country, and these people of different religions were uh, really subverting what America was supposed to be. The the loudest anti-immigrant voices today, aside from the president, are these white nationalist uh, hate groups and neo-Nazi groups. Uh, who were the the anti-immigrant uh, leaders of the 20s? Well, you know, it's a complicated story because I'm sure there were uh, many sort of uh, rank-and-file people. But, you know, the big anti-immigration movement of that earlier period was um, pushed by very distinguished, very upper-class men, uh, many of them academics, some of them were so-called scientists who were pushing uh, this new, new set of ideas called eugenics, which divides the populations of the world into superior and inferior peoples and so on. So uh, you had a very, very different story at that time. Uh, On the other hand, I don't think we should assume that there are no uh, upper-class people who are supportive of the white nationalist position today. Yeah. Well, now we are told the 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 base of anti-immigrant politics, the the uh, you know white working class Trump voters see themselves as directly threatened by immigrants who they fear we are told will take their jobs and displace them in the uh, low wage economy. Was that the situation in the twenties? Uh, not so much. Some people made those claims that these immigrants were going to take their jobs, but. You have to remember that the United States was a very expanding industrial economy at that time. And so the argument that people were stealing jobs, even though it was made, uh, it didn't have the kind of traction mm -hmm. that it does today. But, you know, once again, most of that uh, claim today is also not borne out by the facts. Yeah. Well, let's talk. You, you said that the argument for for uh, limiting or or blocking immigration to the United States that culminated in the 1920s claimed a scientific basis in a new science they called uh, eugenics. We now don't consider it a science, but they considered it a science then. What, what, what were their supposedly scientific uh, findings uh, in this new field of eugenics? 
Well, when you look at it from today's perspective, it all seems absurd, but you have to understand how widely accepted it was at that time. Uh, into the 1920s, you would find a eugenics chapter in just about every college or maybe even high school biology textbook. Uh, this was considered state-of-the-art, and it was found, uh, it rested on a, a really bizarre notion that all sorts of qualities uh, were actually genetic. And the list of those qualities is absurd. I mean, for example, frivolousness or <laughs> musicality or uh, inclinations toward criminality, all of these kinds of things flowed around with the understanding that they were part of a genetic base. Um, this movement led, uh, for example, to a whole program throughout the United States, I think 30 of the states, passed these um, mandatory sterilization laws in which people who were labeled female mutated were sterilized by law. Uh, women we're talking about primarily. And of course, the so-called feeble-minded, if it meant anything at all, it really meant people who had little access to education. Uh, frivolousness as a genetic characteristic of national groups. This is, this is a great one. So was it the Poles were frivolous or was it the Irish? I'm, I'm uncertain about this. <laughs> well, you know, there, there is like this ladder of the superior and uh, running all the way down through a whole list of people who are the inferior. Some of their judgments were, are so absurd in the context of today. For example, their view that the Chinese were not educable. <laughs> uh, that these are people who are simply not capable of succeeding tell, in getting an education. Yeah, tell that to Harvard that? University, which has been accused of of uh, discriminating against white people because so many Chinese have been admitted. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, similar arguments about the Jews, that huge proportions of the Jews were rated as morons oh, dear. as they were coming into the United States. These things, it's very hard to put your mind around uh, the fact that many people accepted these ideas, uh, and it really comes in a, through in a, a belief that actually is a little more common today than we know, and that is that there is some sort of uh, essential America, uh, which is predominantly white, um, predominantly Protestant. Maybe, you know, Catholics are not... Uh, have been a little bit excluded from the the hate list today, but certainly anti-Semitism mm -hmm. is on the rise again. And there is this notion that these people are not real uh, parts of the American society. Well, I mean, when when Trump said that the Mexicans crossing the border are are rapists and murderers, that certainly sounds a little bit like the 1920s. It certainly does. It certainly does. Although, again. Uh, you know, in some ways it's worse because the 1920s rhetoric was not so much about criminality. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very much uh, about religion along with these. I mean, Catholicism was being labeled uh, a really, um, what should I say, a corrupt uh, religion that was not truly Christian. And I won't even mention what the view of Jews were. It's also true that in the 1920s, though, you had 
people didn't make a clear distinction between what we would today think of as race and what we today call ethnicity. And so there was this kind of fuzzy area. The Jews were certainly considered a foreign race mm-hmm. uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and all this culminated in 1924. Uh, before 1924, the United States had laws blocking the immigration of Chinese and permitting some Japanese um, but 1924, Congress uh, passed severe restrictions on immigration of many kinds. Tell us about that law. Um, it was the first universal restriction on immigration that this country ever had. And uh, let me say at this point that um, the rise of the 1920s Ku Klux Klan was a major force in the passage of this law, because this was the this law enacted what was really exactly the Ku Klux Klan's hierarchy of of the races, and that that um, Ku Klux Klan notion matched perfectly uh, the eugenics notion. Uh, the The man who shepherded this uh, immigration bill through the House, uh, Representative Alfred Johnson of Washington State was a very, very close ally of the Washington State Ku Klux Klan. He appeared at many of their rallies, and so on. It's not clear whether he was actually a member, but he was. Uh, he spoke in favor of the Ku Klux Klan. So, what the 1924 law did was it went back to a period before all this immigration. Uh, back to 1880, I believe it was, and they looked at what were the ethnic and religious groups in the United States at that time, and then they established a set of quotas uh, in which they were attempting to, in a sense, replicate what the United States had been in before this large wave of immigration. And so you have this list of these quotas in which there are very large quotas for the British or uh, somewhat uh, smaller, but still very large for people from Scandinavia, the white Protestant countries. And then you have the people at the bottom, in which there are just these tiny quotas. I believe the quota for every country in Africa was 100. Mm. That was the total number of immigrants from Africa who were allowed to come here. Um, What's even more shocking about this law is that it passed Congress with very, very little dissent. And I think another thing that a lot of Americans don't understand is that this law was the law of the land for over four decades. And how did it happen that the 1924 law, with these severe restrictions on the immigration of people who were not white and Protestant and Northern European, how did it happen that that got changed? Oh, it it was a big struggle to change it. It was changed in 1965. Um, really, I I would say, uh, looking in the large picture, it was changed because of the impact for the first time of progressive movements, the civil rights movement yeah. above all, and other progressive movements that were really uh, making people question the truth of these racist. Uh, premises which people had held as truths for the earlier period. Um, But but. 
it is also true that it very quickly uh, connected with the United States' rather incoherent and self-contradictory policy toward um, migrants from the South, from Mexico or from Latin America. Because on the one hand, we were uh, saying these people don't belong here, they should be deported. On the other hand, they were being recruited uh, to be part of a very large Bracero uh, movement, uh, providing cheap labor for the big corporate farmers of California. Uh, today, moving moving up for in our last couple of minutes to the situation today, the kind of uh, overt racism and white nationalism that dominated Congress in the 1920s has been forced underground. They've become kind of disreputable unless they're uh, disguised. Uh, uh, would you call that progress? Yes, in some way, but you know, there's another aspect of this that I worry that is worse today, and that is, in this early 20th century period, in the and well into the 1920s, you did not have a man who was the head of the U.S. government who was spouting uh, all of this racist kind of um, uh, 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 talk and uh, and really a kind of incriminating talk. Mm-hmm. Woodrow Wilson was a great racist, but he was also a kind of polite gentleman. He was not standing up there ranting uh, about the, the immigrant problem. So I worry about the fact that today you have someone in a very, very high position who is, um, who is legitimating uh, this kind of really crazy um, racism and bigotry. Linda Gordon, she wrote about the last time a wall went up to keep out immigrants for the New York Times Book Review. Linda, thanks so much for talking with us today. And thank you, John. Really nice to hear your voice. Bye. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, they're killing Mad Magazine. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up in a minute, the end of Mad Magazine. But first, it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Amazon warehouse workers in Minnesota plan to strike during Amazon Prime Day, the company's summer sales extravaganza next week. The Fulfillment Center, as Amazon calls its warehouses, this particular one is in Shakopee, just south of the Twin Cities. Many of the workers there are Somali and Muslim who are amazingly militant. Uh, So that's next Monday. Uh, Shakopee, Minnesota, Amazon warehouse workers who are mostly Somali uh, and who who chant, yes, we can, in Somali, on strike uh, against Amazon. This has been your Minnesota moment, a special feature of this show on KPFK. 
America's greatest and most influential magazine of satire, Mad Magazine, has now been declared dead by the owners. DC Comics announced that the legendary gang of idiots who write and draw for it will be out of work later this month. For comment, we turn to Jeet here. He's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, and he's written a lot about comics and cartoons. He edits the Walt and Skizik series with the great Chris Ware. And he writes about comics. You can see some examples in his book, Sweet Lechery. Uh, Jeet here, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, return with us now to the summer of 1954 when any American kid with a dime could walk into a drugstore and buy Mad Comics number 17. Uh, you're an expert on this. What was in that issue? Well, there was a uh, comic book story about uh, the McCarthy hearings, which were then in sort of full bloom on TV. Uh, and um, the editor, Harvey Kurtzman, working with the great artist Jack Davis, recast the McCarthy hearings as a TV game show called What's My Shine? Um, some <laughs> listeners might know that uh, David Shine was the, um, let's say, close personal friend mm. of Roy Cohen, uh, <laughs> McCarthy's aide. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a satire of McCarthy's antics, but I think more interestingly is a satire of the medium that McCarthy uses. is just basically saying that, you know, McCarthy is not just like this one demagogue, it's the fact that, like, uh, there we have this uh, thing called television, which has allowed McCarthy to flourish and turn politics into entertainment. And, um, you know, now that we're living um, under President Trump, a reality show host who learned politics under the uh, tutelage of Roy Cohen, um, I think the lesson still holds. Well, Mad Comics became Mad Magazine in 1955, uh, in writing at thenation.com, you say Mad was often rude, tasteless, and childish. Is that a criticism on your part? Uh, it's a description more than a criticism. <laughs> I mean, I think all, the, I think all these uh, uh, dis, uh, terms uh, describe this sort of impotent spirit, which as he made it a great magazine. That it was, uh, um, I mean, it really came out of the most conformist period in modern American history, the 1950s, with a sort of Cold War had really narrowed American cultural space. Uh, and in response, it had this kind of anarchic, you know, thumbing your nose attitude, um, and which, as it turns out, kids loved, <laughs> which became hugely popular and, you know, really laid the seedbed for, like, uh, the rebellions of the next 40 or 50 years. So you you say that the that MAD uh, had a, a message, although it was never made very explicit, and the message was distrust authority. Uh, what kind of authority are we talking about here? Well, I think, like, basically all authority uh, is, like, politicians of all stripes. But also, I think, more interestingly, um, you know, during the great consumer boom of the 50s, it was one of the first popular magazines, uh, first popular publications that served anti-advertising. And was like, you know, a lot of their stuff was parodies of ads saying that um, advertisers are lying to you. I think Art Spiegelman, the cartoonist, summed it up best where he said, Mad's message was that everyone is lying to you, the government's lying to you, the, uh, the media's lying to you, and by the way, we're the media. <laughs> uh, meaning that there's also a self-reflexive element in the critique. 
The great Art Spiegelman. Uh, so what do we know about where MAD came from and, and who created what who created it? What they they said it was written by the usual gang of idiots. Who who were these people? Well, I, I think that the, for, uh, the real genius behind it all was Harvey Kurtzman, who I, I think it's fair to say was a red diaper baby. Uh, his parents subscribed to the Daily Worker and sent him to, you know, a progressive summer camp. Um, and he, I, I mean, he didn't share all his uh, parents' politics. He was more of an anarchist than a communist, but he certainly, you know, inherited the sort of uh, anti-racism, anti-war sentiment uh, of the sort of popular front left. Uh, and before doing that, he did these amazing war comics from the early 50s, which were basically, you know, brutal accounts of the Korean War, which were designed by him to counter sort of uh, propaganda of the Euros that glorified war. Uh, and he, he brought that same spirit to MAD, where it's really, uh, he thought that like a lot of the media was just lying to people, and he wanted to do parodies that showed the lies. I think, uh, I mean, just as a simple example, uh, he did a parody of Mickey Mouse called Mickey Rodent. Ideas, <laughs> you know, like let's let's call the, let's call this creature by its real name. <laughs> you say that the early years of Mad were genuinely dangerous times for its publisher. How come? Well, in in the early fifties, there was a crackdown on comic books, uh, similar, I guess, to more recent crackdowns on rap music or on video games, but like a really serious business. I mean, they had. Uh, Congress senatorial hearings where the publisher Bill Gaines was, you know, brought before the Senate, and uh, uh, where there's like a psychiatrist writing books saying comic books were dangerous, and parents groups and church groups organizing comic book burnings. I mean, this happened on a mass scale. And Bill Gaines, the publisher of Mad, also published uh, Tales from the Crypt and a lot of these horror comics that were, you know, like uh, and his his stance, which is that you know kids can handle. Uh, violent entertainment and can uh, know how to process that was not very popular at the time. Um, the um, uh, one of his business manager was arrested for one of the uh, uh, parody stories that Mad owned, uh, and uh, so they, they, they fear. Uh, and often Mad was sued in in the first few decades. Like so, he was always under sort of legal threat. And uh, Gaines was kind of like. He was a Larry Flint for 12-year-olds. Like, he really had this kind of, you know, go-for-broke attitude where, like, he didn't care what the government said or what the lawyers said. Larry Flint for 12-year-olds. There's a memorable uh, phrase. Uh, I understand that in 1961, Mad was called, <clears throat> quote, the most insidious co communist propaganda in the United States today, close quote. What's the story there? Uh, well, that was um, a brigadier general, a retired brigadier general. Uh, his name excuse me, was it Wyatt? Uh, anyways, he, uh, um, but I mean, it was, you know, like this is the height of the Cold War, and this is a, a comic book or a magazine at this point teaching people not to trust authority. And especially in the early 60s, they really went hard after, you know, the John Birch Society and the ultra-nationalist patriots. And um, uh, I think that, that was the impetus. But I mean, the, the political right has always distrusted Matt. I'll um, give you like another example, which sure. is in 1977, uh, the New York Times Magazine published an article celebrating the anniversary of Mad, saying it had a huge impact on uh, the generation of the 60s and predicting it would have war in the future. And National Review wrote a little editorial that was like aghast at this, saying like, oh my God, this article, by the way, written by Tony Hiss, 
the son of Algeris, uh, uh, is uh, celebrating, uh, you know, this horrible magazine, and who knows what impact it's going to have in the future. Now, I have to point out that Tony Hiss is the son of Alger Hiss, who was accused of being a communist spy. So perhaps this charge of insidious communist propaganda, and you have said his, that the, that the uh, parents of Harvey Kurtzman were Communist Party uh, people. So perhaps this charge of insidious communist propaganda had something to it. I, I think that, I mean, the real thing is that, like, there was a, uh, you know, there's a purge in the 40s and 50s where the left was purged from American life. And so a lot of that left-wing energy went uh, underground or went into different directions, and one of that directions was MAD. Um, uh, and then later, and that planted the seeds for, you know, the, the later politics that uh, revolted against the sort of conformism of the 50s. So, I, I, I mean, I think that's basically the story here. Uh, the people at MAD, I mean, they weren't all Jewish, but many of them were Jewish, and they were very much formed by the sort of suppression of... Um, uh, ethnic culture and the sort of radical Yiddish culture. I mean, Kurtzman loved to put Yiddish faces in that magazine, and he was doing it at a point where, you know, white bread America ruled supreme. Excellent point. Uh, but I understand that the from your article at thenation.com that the Grand Dragon of the, Ku, of the Ku Klux Klan was a reader of Mad Magazine. Did, did he like it? Uh, no, he did not like it. He also thought that it was uh, poisoning the minds of the young, and he was very mad that they made fun of the Klan. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things with Mad. You know, even though it's politics, I mean, I don't think we should say it's politics for progressive. It's politics for anarchists. They made fun of everybody, and they certainly made fun of hippies uh, and feminists. But I mean, I think there's a way in which that anarchic politics is very interesting because it introduced politics to kids. It, it sort of presumed that kids were smart enough to know that they're living. In, not in a consensus America, not in a leave it to beaver America, but in America where you had, you know, you had hippies and you had radicals and you also had clansmen. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Jeet here. He's national affairs correspondent for the National Magazine, and we're talking about Mad Magazine. The publishers, DC Comics, have announced no more new issues after the next two weeks. They will remain on the web. Uh, reposting old material, of which, of course, there's, what, 70 years, but the usual gang of idiots who've been drawing this are all going to be out of work uh, in the next week or two. Um, Jeet, you you say uh, that in Mad Magazine, one of the key um, satires was of Superman. They called him Super Duper Man, and they said Super Duper Man was a creep. That's that's un-American. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, yeah that was the drawn by the Greek Hollywood, and uh, it's uh, it was well worth looking up. Uh, I mean, I mean, the basic idea was that you know inside the super, the love triangle of Superman, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, Lois Lane, there's a kind of weird incel, you know, uh, woman hatred going on there, and that Superman is actually kind of a creep. Uh, so, so so there was a kind of uh, a real gender critique, and then actually, interestingly. Uh, what I've discovered, you know, um, since writing the article and then all the feedback is, you know, like, women read Mad as much as boys did. I mean, I think the stereotype is that it was a young boys magazine. But certainly, like, uh, Patty Smith and Gloria Steinem were both uh, avid Mad readers. What did Patty Smith say about Mad? She said that after Mad, drugs were nothing. After Mad, drugs were nothing. The great Patty Smith. Wow. Um 
And tell us about the Adolf Hitler smoking ad. Well, because Mad was the didn't take ads after 1958, um, they had a freedom to go after like the cigarette companies that the you know the rest of the media didn't because every other magazine took cigarette ads, and so they did this like ad where they had Adolf Hitler endorsing smoking, saying you know like I killed a lot of people in my time, but uh, you know you really want to uh, fill up the cemeteries. Cigarettes are the way to go. Uh, so, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then that was a big target for them, like sort of cigarettes advertising and, and advertising in general. So I think it was a kind of, um, I mean, I think it was one of the major showcases for media criticism in America. Excellent point. But uh, I've been wondering about you and Mad Magazine. You are a youngster. You're much too young to remember, you know, the 50s and the 60s. What's your relationship to Mad Magazine? How did you discover it? Well, I think like a lot of kids, I started reading it when I was like nine or ten. You have to remember, Mad was always doing reprints, so I did actually end up seeing like the crits and stuff because they would do books and magazines uh, reprinting it. And I think for I mean for me, the one thing I remember was a, a reprint where they did um, a story making fun of Hogan's Heroes, which is a show that was still in its syndication. And but they set the instead of a POW camp, they set in the concentration camp mm. with all the sort of visual imagery that it implies. And so it really brought home that like, well, hey, this is a show that turned World War Two into a sitcom. And, and what do we think about that? <laughs> so so uh, wow. it was very very powerful. Like I think uh, um, so. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's a very typical experience. I and mean, I think one of the good things about Mad was it was historical because they did these reprints. So you know, even though. I was reading it like in the late seventies, early eighties. They had all these Spiro Agnew jokes, <laughs> so, so they taught us not just one but several generations to despise Spiro Agnew. So, what does it tell us about today's world that Mad is disappearing? Is this a victory for Trump and Trumpism, or or does the spirit of Mad live on? Well, I, I think that Mad um, like has so shaped American culture that in some ways it rendered itself superfluous. Like, I think, you know, going back to the underground comics of the 60s and then Saturday Night Live, National Lampoon, The Simpsons, The Daily Show, Colbert, you know, like, it's just like The Onion. I mean, I, I think, like, everything that we see of that satirical tradition has come from that. So, in some ways, I mean, the root has has been hurt, but the, it's still a flourishing tree. Um, I mean, it's just very hard to do print media. It's hard to do... Uh, so, I mean, I felt, I feel like it had the healthy circulation even now of like 200,000, but uh, I guess for the people at DC Comics, that's not enough. They have taken on Trump. I know a, a recent issue of the, of the print magazine, uh, Alfred E. Newman has the Trump haircut, which is hilarious, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they've been doing Trump since the 80s. I mean, he's a perfect foil for them. I mean, it's sort of ridiculousness. So they've been ahead of the game on that. Jeet here, his article, Mad Magazine Told the Truth About War, Advertising, and the Media, appears at thenation.com. You can read it there, where Patty Smith is quoted saying, after mad, drugs were nothing. Jeet here, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, it's been great to be here again. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, 
John Nichols talked about politics, including the breaking news that Trump announced in the Rose Garden as our show was opening that he was abandoning his effort to get a citizenship question into the census. He says he's going to try to find out how many citizens there are by directing Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross to do something else. We also spoke with Linda Gordon about anti-immigrant politics in American history. Thanks to our engineer, Lizette Tapia. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music. Uh, Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.